So I, I don't think there's been a lot of difficulty doing that translation as long as the approach is, how can I help this person? And what are they trying to do? And, and being able to approach it from this view of like building rapport and having empathy is I think critical because otherwise the person sitting across from you might say something and you're just in your own space and you want to understand what they're actually trying to convey to you. And it's not their job to be the perfect communicator. It's your job to, yeah. to listen really well and understand. Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. Now let's get started. Hello, and welcome back. In today's episode, I speak with Suchi Pahi, a data privacy and cybersecurity lawyer who currently works as a senior privacy and product counsel at Databricks. She previously served as the Director of Privacy and Business Affairs and later Acting Chief Privacy Officer at Rally Health, as well as an associate working on data privacy and cybersecurity at the law firms of Greenberg, Trowing, and Baker. She's a regular speaker on data security topics and holds her CIPPUS certification from the International Association of Privacy Professionals. She's a graduate of the University of Texas at Austin, Go Longhorns, and the University of Houston Law Center, Go Cougars. Welcome to the podcast, Suchi. Thanks, Jonah. I'm excited to have you here. So I was hoping we could just start by talking a little bit about your story and your path to becoming a lawyer and more specifically a lawyer that works in this cybersecurity data privacy space. Yeah. So I have a weird path and I've several times on the cybersecurity circuit noted that I fell backwards into being a privacy and cybersecurity lawyer specifically because I was originally going for being a doctor. And, and we hit several stereotypes when I say that. And so um, I actually ended up basically diverging from my original college plan when I saw a flyer for health information technology coursework that was funded by the federal government. And this was right when physicians were told that they needed to implement what we call electronic health record systems. So if you go to your doctor's office, you'll see like your doctor has the screen and they're typing stuff while you're talking and the nurse has been typing stuff while you're talking. And so those were the systems they ended up learning about the health policy pieces, the health privacy pieces, how you implement them and all of that stuff. And then subsequently worked at Memorial Hermann Health Systems in Houston and implemented electronic health record systems and did some IT work for seven to nine months. It was something like that for ambulatory care physicians. So during that whole time, what was interesting was myself and another um, associate who were at Memorial Hermann, we were tasked with reading through the HIPAA regulations and um, figuring out how to train physicians and their staff on this mm. health privacy work. And so that was my first sort of brush with privacy. And I realized I thought it was really interesting I thought it was really odd the way certain things were carved out or certain things weren't covered. And that's what sparked my interest in privacy. So I had a pretty early start and I was interested in privacy, but my school at the time didn't have a privacy or cybersecurity curriculum. And I focused mostly on intellectual property and some internet law. I think a lot of schools now, though, have privacy and cybersecurity programs. Yeah, it certainly feels like it's becoming a much bigger sort of practice area. And as a result, law schools tend, in my experience, to be a couple years behind the ball, at least, because you need to find the right people to teach it. You need to find the right textbooks to implement it. But it sounds right. And what I love about your story is 
and, and it's a story I hear a lot on the podcast and I find it very freeing. And I think other people should find it very freeing that sometimes what you do is you do something else that tells you, oh, there's this legal niche that I didn't know existed. I saw it from the non-legal side or the non-lawyer side. And that's what made me decide to pursue this path. And it sounds like that's exactly what happened for you. Yeah, that was exactly it. And and the more I read about privacy stuff, the more interested I became. And being a tech native really helps. So the folks you have in law school right now who are growing up surrounded by more invasive technology than I was, even when I was um, in law school, which was only like seven years ago. So it hasn't been that long. But you're just aware of the surveillance and the amount of data that's being collected. It's just been one thing after another for the last several years. And so I feel like there's more of an on-ramp for privacy and cybersecurity in terms of learning about the topic and issues than there was before. But I I don't know how easy the road is for entry-level privacy and cybersecurity because the only route that I've seen so far that's worked really well has been folks getting into the cybersecurity incident response side or technology transactions, which is a practice area that focuses more on, I think, the commercial aspects or licensing and things like that. Those two sides are pretty much the way you onboard, but it's very hard to just go up to a law firm and say, I want to be in your privacy practice because you rarely really know what that means and they don't know what to do with you when you're just starting out. So let's, if you don't mind, let's dig in a little bit on that because I think for you, it seems obvious. And for those of us on the outside, it might not be so obvious. So I guess the first question is, what do you mean by those pieces of cybersecurity incident response and technological transactions? And then maybe we can talk a little bit about how you actually can do this work at a law firm. Yeah, this will be fun. So privacy and cybersecurity are actually two separate areas that work hand in hand, but it's very rare to find a privacy lawyer who is also cybersecurity. And right Mm -hmm. now, cybersecurity is branching off as its own niche very slowly, but it's doing it. So for example, if you were to look at Microsoft's um, attorney group, which I think is CELA, they have dedicated cybersecurity attorneys who do things, who work with like threat intel primarily. So they work with the cybersecurity technical incident responders. And when I say threat intelligence, what I'm talking about is research that these attorneys or their tech specialists are seeing about new groups that are attacking various systems or maybe attacking various systems and who they're associated potentially with. And so that sounds very vague and and high in the sky. And what I mean is, hey, there's this one group that's really working on a lot of ransomware for a company like yours. And here's everything we know about them. Here's the method. And that would be like a threat intel report. And what role are lawyers playing in that? It makes sense to me that there would be engineers and technical folks and maybe some business side folks who need to make the decisions because I know a lot of it's a matter of risk assessment, which is often a matter of how much money are we willing to throw at a potential problem. Where do the lawyers come in on that incident response team? So from my experience in general incident response or healthcare incident response, the lawyer ends up as the conductor of everything. You're the person making sure that the right people are communicating, that you have a timeline of the events, that if you're working proactively, so if your client knows that there is a potential DDoS coming down the road because they've gotten some kind of weird email, um, a DDoS is a denial of service attack. Mm -hmm. It's basically overloading your servers so you can't actually conduct your business. 
So if, if they, if your client knows that something like that is coming down the pipeline, you might say to your client, Hey, fellow attorney, why don't we get your IT and your managed security or your external security folks on a call and talk about what we can do to mitigate the damage that you're going to potentially have from a DDoS attack to your business. So you're doing a lot of that. You're also making sure that your client has the ability to respond to any data breach notification requirements or regulatory investigations. Got it. And so that means, do you have the people, can you have to draft the notice letters? You need to know which regulators you need to reach out to, potentially not on paper, potentially on the phone. You might have to figure out what the data architecture or the data flow is for your clients so that you can explain it to a regulator when they come knocking and say, hey, how did this happen? And you exposed a bunch of uh, PHI or PII. So that's hmm. the role that the lawyer is playing. Yeah, that's really interesting to me also because it strikes me as a little bit different than a lot of the more traditional areas of practice that sort of have their silos of litigation, transactional work, even regulatory work. This is more like a combination of team leadership, issue spotting. There's law there, which is why I think it makes sense for a lawyer to have to do it, but it's not like law is in the foreground. It's almost consistently in the background, right? Who's going to sue us if we screw up? What regulator is going to come after us if we don't do this? What sort of potential state or federal laws do we have to comply with? Which strikes me as a very different kind of role than a lot of other lawyers. Is that right? I actually think so. And that hits on something I've said to several younger attorneys that I've talked to, which is it takes a specific personality or type of person or style of working to really enjoy the practice of cybersecurity incident response, because you want to be the kind of person who's more deadline driven, likes high pressure situations, and also really likes to learn about new technology and get into the nitty gritty while still being able to have that high level perspective. So one of the advantages of being extremely nerdy and having a science background is that I love talking to engineers about what they're working on. And that's been something that's really served me well in my time, both in private practice and in-house, because if I can talk to the folks who are actually building the technology that I'm lawyering for, I can actually assess legal risks appropriately, especially when it comes to cybersecurity and privacy. So you have to really like to, to learn and, and be able to pivot rapidly to be successful in this space. It's amazing how often I hear that that just a, sh a little bit of curiosity can be a legal superpower and it helps to be in an area that you find interesting. And if you don't find this area interesting, it's probably not the right fit for you. But also being interested alone isn't sufficient either. It's also, do you have the adrenaline? Do you have the ability to be called in the middle of the night and solve a problem? That kind of thing too. Yeah, and also be able to be detail-oriented and, and mm -hmm. at the same time. And I say that because legislation isn't always drafted in an easily understandable manner or consistently when it comes to certain things. So if you're looking at data breach legislation across all of our states that have them, the definitions will be drafted in inconsistent ways or drafted in ways that you really need to interpret them for your client and figure out where the ambiguity is so that you protect your client. And so mm -hmm. a, a lot of that depends on one small word. And of course, your students probably recognize this as statutory interpretation. If you're going into cybersecurity practice, statutory interpretation is a great class to take. 
You should huh. definitely learn <laughs> right. You would never, that's what I love talking to people on the ground because you would never assume that statutory interpretation is going to be an important concept for cybersecurity lawyers. But then again, what you said was we're still in, in the early innings in terms of regulation. And that means, right, interpreting things for the first time. And that means we don't have a body of law. So statutory interpretation is the best thing we got. Plus, we have maybe 50 states, not to mention however many countries where all this happens, yes. all with slightly different laws. And that's a huge challenge. Um, I was wondering if we could pivot. You said there's a difference between cybersecurity and privacy. Can you tell me a little bit more about the privacy side? Yes. And actually, we're rolling right into it. So the statutory interpretation piece is just one piece of what you need for the cybersecurity and privacy side. Honestly, what you have to be aware of when you're coming into the privacy world is that it's a constantly in flux area. And you're right, it's it's just really coming into its own. So there's a lot of room for you to make an impact or a difference if you're in the space. But you also have to know what you're talking about. And so that's where we come to. There is a Western Hemisphere approach. And when I say Western Hemisphere, I'm really talking about the US and Canada. And then we have the European approach, which is actually European and encompasses most of the global south as well. I guess South America, maybe not all of the continent of Africa. Anyway, so basically there's a difference in how we approach privacy. The European approach to privacy is the human right. We're going to do our best to give you rights over your data. So there are a lot of obligations on companies to make sure that what they call data subjects are protected or have the ability to access their um, information or port their information or delete their information all of these things that make it easier for you not to be basically tracked over your lifetime with longitudinal tracking and to make it so that you don't have this problem where you aren't able to actually address decisions made on your behalf in an automated mm -hmm. fashion outside of your knowledge base at all. And in Europe, that's just not going to be a thing that happens, which is a little bit garbled, but let's keep rolling with it. No, it makes sense. Yeah. So I guess if I was to just frame up for privacy folks coming in or folks coming into privacy, what I really emphasize is that when you're working with your European clients, they're working under a regulatory framework that's much more fleshed out and has more history and has more implementing authorities. So each country has its own um, regulator as well who can set forth additional interpretations of this broad general regulation called the GDPR. And this is just, it's been in the works for years. And, and one of the sticky points for privacy lawyers right now is cross-border data transfers. And it's, hey, my company is based in the U.S., but we're targeting folks in Europe. And this is all the stuff we're doing with the data. And we want to bring it all to the U.S. And so that's like the big question that's going on. How do we do it? How do we protect it? And a lot of the work that you do as a privacy lawyer is figuring out, like the cybersecurity side, what data do we have? How are we securing it? Who is able to see it? Have we made sure only the people who need to see are seeing it? And then do we delete it at a particular correct time? Does this data fall under any of these hundreds of regulations? And what else do I need to do to meet um, the needs of potentially my end users or my business client? And then how does that differ? So what does the US model for that look like? Yeah, so the U.S. model, and you're going to hear this over and over again when you look at privacy in the U.S., is a patchwork of laws. We don't have a federal law. So we're more industry-based or state-by-state-based. And when I say industry-based, you've heard about HIPAA, especially with the recent COVID-19 misinformation brain trust. And so HIPAA is actually 
the federal regulation for what we say are covered entities and business associates. So primarily the healthcare ecosystem. So hospitals and folks who process a subset of information on behalf of hospitals or other healthcare providers. And so that's HIPAA. And then separately, you'll have the GLBA for your financial industry. And so that's a very like sector-based approach, which I think is normal for United States development of law. However, what it ends up causing is a massive headache and lots of insanity for most of your privacy lawyers, because it's very rare that you have one company that's working with just one sector or one company that's just working in one state. And so Mm. a lot of times if you have a company that's subject to multiple regulations, your privacy lawyers that are in-house or their outside counsel are trying to figure out, okay, what is really covered by this particular regulation? So when everything goes sideways, who do I need to report to and what do I need to And I guess the follow-up to that is, how do you keep track of all of that? How do you learn all of that? It's as you, It almost sounds like a little bit Wild West. Everything's changing every six months. Take a contracts class in law school and you experience a contract dispute in practice five years later, you may not know the details, but you can at least issue spot the big pieces. That doesn't strike me as the same for a patchwork privacy uh, regime and one that has a whole international component as well. Like, How do you learn it and how do you keep up with it? Yeah, you digest a lot of information rapidly from the news, maybe on LinkedIn, maybe via the IAPP, which is the International Association of Privacy Professionals. They have a very active group in the U.S., they push out articles about new regulations, about new standards, about potential interpretations, and typically outside counsel. So if you're in-house, outside counsel will also do blog posts. If you're not in-house and you're in private practice, then the, the burden is definitely directly on you to be tracking like Bloomberg or other news um, RSS feeds to see what's going on in cybersecurity and data privacy. And maybe... The best thing is to have a friend who's working on the legislative or government affairs side who can talk to you about things that they're seeing in various state legislative bodies. It's yeah. interesting because I feel like the closest analog of someone I've talked to, at least on the podcast, is the area of employment law, which also is a patchwork system. And and lawyers in that world sound very similar into sort of you need to be up on the legal news in order to be able to do your job and issue spot new issues that weren't issues last week. So it's it, that's an interesting connection to me of these areas of heavily regulated worlds, but not heavily regulated by one entity. And that may be the only way around it. Yeah. And interestingly, I think some of the really interesting stuff that's going on right now is the U.S. is in the last five to six years, they've been talking about, or we've been talking about having federal uh, regulation for data privacy. And honestly, we need the right people in the room for that conversation. So the legislators need tech specialists or folks who are surrounded by the tech all the time now to really work with the policymakers and explain what the impacts are. And and one of the things that's currently on my radar is extended reality. And now it's on everyone's radar because of the Facebook announcement of renaming their company, right, into Meta. And so the fun thing is Facebook is not the first to the finish line on this one. There are many startups and many companies that have been in this extended reality space. And extended reality means augmented reality or mixed reality and virtual reality. So it's basically all of that is on this spectrum. So as you go from um, virtual to mixed to fully augmented, 
-hmm. you're looking at different experiences that are maybe they're a headset plus something that attaches to your hands. So all of this data collection that's happening behind the scenes when you're like playing games in a virtual reality or augmented reality world, it's like thousands upon thousands of data points. And so interestingly, what the folks who are engineering on this have seen is that they can identify someone just based on the way they walk, their stress levels from the way that their heart rate is increasing during X part of the game. So there are a lot of implications in the data privacy and the cybersecurity side with this extended reality world. So there's a lot of like fun stuff that's constantly coming up with data privacy and cybersecurity. And it sounds like that's just going to keep coming in different areas. It strikes me that and again, I'm an obviously an outsider to this world, but that data is becoming a part of every piece of everyday life in a way that it wasn't even 5, 10, 15 years ago. That could be tracking where your car goes. You have something that tracks your fuel economy or your energy economy. That could be the books you read. That could be the websites you visit. It's remarkable. I want to talk a little bit about your path in this world as a way of talking about potential paths in this world. You mentioned that it's, despite the fact that this is a booming Wild West business, it's very hard to walk into the door of a law firm and say, hey, I think I want to be a cybersecurity lawyer. And there's a disconnect there. And I guess I'm hoping you could talk maybe a little bit about your experience sort of landing in that space in a law firm, but also how you'd recommend somebody who is either coming out of law school or has been at a law firm for a few years and says, I like what I'm doing, but I think I'd like what you're talking about a little bit more. Yeah. So I'd say my experience was a little bit of an uphill battle. I initially started out at a medical malpractice boutique. And the way that conversation happened was, hey, we'll hire you to do med mal litigation with us on the defense side. And I said, okay, that sounds great. How about I also build out your health privacy practice because med mal litigation has a lower revenue basically. Mm -hmm. and, and so they were like, okay, that sounds great. So I ended up setting up their blog and writing a lot about data privacy and cybersecurity in the healthcare space, and also started setting up these like conferences with our risk management groups in the local area so that we could talk to them about yeah. what we did in data privacy and cybersecurity. Smart. Um, yeah. So it was a little bit sideways because from there, there was a friend who knew how interested I was in cybersecurity data privacy and that I was writing about it. And they were like, oh, we've heard of this group that's hiring. And that was my in to Baker Hostetler. So it wasn't the traditional path. It was very much, I'm going to write about this and people are going to notice and I'm going to tell people that I'm interested in this and I know what I'm doing. And that's how I made it into the law firm. And um, I actually think expressing your interest and knowledge base like that is still really important if you're trying to come into a practice area. And I think the way that translates now is making sure that you, if you're in a law firm, you communicate to the partner that you're working for, the senior associate that you're working for, hey, I really like this kind of work and I'm really good at it. Or let me show you what I can do here. And you start taking sort of the low hanging fruit, whether it's drafting a letter so that they can send it to a thousand people or just a really quick uh, analysis of where they might need to do reporting or, hey, it looks like you might have a GDPR issue here. If you have that base from all the reading and stuff that you've been doing, you can do that for a senior associate or a partner. And, and at some point, they become more reliant on your work and they'll pull you into their group. That's what I've seen. 
Um, yeah, no, that's interesting. I love that idea. It's almost like you do, you become a permissionless expert. Like you didn't ask anybody permission besides your firm to start a blog and start reading. And you built those skills so that when it was game time, you could pitch that you had the skills. Uh, and that's not that, that's not that different than a lot of niche practices in law firms, which I talk to people all the time, especially people who have been in law firms for a few years. And they say, I've been at the firm for a few years. I've done a bunch of litigation, but I actually, my real passion is something else. Maybe it's anti-money laundering or something smaller and more niche. How do I get into that? And my advice, and it sounds like your advice might be the same, I'd be curious, is just find the people in that place that you are that are even doing a smidge of that work and make yourself known on a regular basis and do it on the side until it can become your complete practice if it works out. Does that sound right? Yeah, 100%. So I had a conversation with some of the folks I knew who were in M&A who wanted to move into privacy. And they were three years in. And so they were like, man, I really want to do privacy. And I said, you have a total in because when you do due diligence, the privacy work comes to my privacy team. But why don't you instead build in the privacy and cybersecurity hmm. questions into your due diligence? And that way you've got your, hey, I set up this whole privacy and and cybersecurity part of our due diligence intake before we do deals. And so it's things like that. It's that identifying the opportunity in the practice area that you're in, and then really being involved with um, local privacy groups. And IAPP, again, is, is a national and international organization, but they have local chapters. And the local chapters are run by folks or volunteered. So folks volunteer to run these chapters, and they are well-established in-house or law firm attorneys who are dedicating their time to actually help people and great resources. You can just email them off the IAPP website or show up to one of the open virtual meetings and then strike up a conversation and see, see what they'd recommend because it really has. So the, the field changes so quickly that sometimes people ask me about IAPP and the CIPP US, which is the US certification for privacy exam. Right. And it has changed twice since I took it. Hmm. And so if you're trying to get into privacy and you don't have a privacy background, then I recommend taking it. If you're in privacy right now, already practicing, I don't see a reason to take it. But basically the CIPP US is an exam that gives you this um, ground level understanding or basic level understanding of everything going on in privacy in the US and what sort of the pain points are. So you have a great starting point, you have a certificate, you can stick next to your name and say, hey, I'm interested in privacy and I've already taken the exam to show that interest. Yeah, it's interesting. That's also something I hear a lot is demonstrated interest is really important when you're trying to start off or pivot. And it may not be that there's a spot for you today, but there might be a spot for you six months from now or 12 months from now when a big case comes in the door that has a piece of this and someone remembers that you said every two months you wrote a nice email that said, hey, I'm working on these great cases, but I'd still love to try to work on something in this area at some point. One of the things I have noticed, though, is that a lot of the bigger firms breaking off the cybersecurity and even data, data privacy into their own practice groups where they have their own set of staff their own partner line is probably the wrong word, but people are making partner by doing this work. Is mm -hmm. that something increasing in the years to come where firms have their litigation practice, they have their, say, M&A practice, and then they also have a data privacy, cybersecurity practice? Yeah, that was the world I was in. And, and I had an interesting conversation with an attorney when I first moved in-house and they were like, oh man, we don't really need a data privacy and cybersecurity practice. We already have it covered in all of our other practices. And, and it was an interesting comment to me because it 
showed me that they didn't know where the area was going hmm. and it was a poor business decision. And, and I stand by that because as you just said, a lot of big law firms have now started doing this separating into a privacy and cybersecurity practice group. And I think that's really important because it's so nuanced and there are so many little changes and just one misstep can really screw your clients over. Yeah. And then that's just irresponsible as an attorney as well. So I hope it continues in that direction. And if you're at a firm that will really help you move, move to something you enjoy doing because they value you as a person and as an attorney, mm -hmm. then hopefully you can say, Hey, I really glad I'm working here. Really this firm want to stay but would love to try out this practice group. And hopefully you have a practice group you can approach like that. Because let me tell you, the practice groups aren't just, they are full of so much work that needs to get done. Everyone is overwhelmed. Your outside counsel, if you're in privacy and cyber are overwhelmed, your in-house counsel are overwhelmed because there's just way too much to do. And it's more than just drafting a privacy policy. It's just constant changes, downstream contracts, upstream contracts, this new regulation. My sales team wants to use all this data to do some machine learning. Like these are the things that are coming up and are coming out to yeah. outside people and you need more people in it. So there shouldn't be a difficulty if you have a set up privacy and cybersecurity practice to try to transition into it. However, if you are running into that problem, then maybe the answer is you need to talk to people who are at other law firms or go in-house. And I'm, I'm saying that because there is no reason for you to stay at a law firm that isn't facilitating your career. And this is especially true for privacy and cybersecurity, because you have so many more opportunities than, than staying where you're at. So go find someone who's going to get you to where you want to go. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So tell me a little bit about your move to in-house and how your experience in-house has been different than as outside counsel. Yeah. So while I was at outside counsel, I did cybersecurity incident response on the health side with Baker Hostetler. And that was what I like to call back-end cybersecurity work. You're always doing fire drills or emergency work, and you're basically on call. You like never sleep. It's a wild life. And so I did that. And when I felt like I had enough competency in that area, I decided to move into what I call front-end cybersecurity and privacy work. And, and by front-end, helping with prevention and policy creation and, and getting companies set up in a way where... If they do, if and when they suffer a data breach, they are able to be flexible and responsive and have all of their ducks in a row so they're not stuck on the other end of a regulatory investigation. Mm -hmm. So I did that. And while I was doing that, I had the opportunity to go on site at a client. And one of their security folks was like, yeah, we're setting up this new initiative to send a bunch of data overseas to this other country and receive a bunch of data and there's payment here. And, and the particular country that they named was very restrictive with all of this. And so I just started issue spotting on the fly with them. And I realized that it was so much fun. It was way more fun than being in my office and doing like the emergency calls or just working on um, policies and stuff like that. And so I ended up deciding to start looking for a in-house opportunity more in the tech world. And happened to apply to a company called Rally Health and joined this amazing team of lawyers. And it was a non-integrated subsidiary when I joined of Optum. And it was just this like great experience of being able to work with smart, nice lawyers who were experts in their field in privacy and cyber, and then, and also in business slash commercial, mm -hmm. and then working with these really brilliant, innovative engineers and, and product teams and stuff like that to try to help them to get these products out the door in a way that was privacy by design or security by design. So that was my pivot into in-house. And one of the selling points that I had was 
having started in a privacy and cybersecurity group and having had that demonstrated interest in privacy. So even though I was only, I think, three and a half years out when I joined them, they were willing to take the risk of a younger attorney. Hmm. Yeah, I think there's so many lessons from that story that I just hearing it. I can say as a former litigator, also, the best thing you can possibly do as a junior lawyer is get an opportunity to actually get on the ground with a client and hear about their business and learn about their business. It makes you more valuable to the law firm if you want to stay. It makes you personally more valuable if you want to leave. And it's a heck of a lot of fun in my experience. And it sounds like it was in yours as well to be the lawyer in a room with a bunch of non-lawyers and if you can be the person who understands them and can translate for them to the other lawyers, you become this conduit that is only something that a junior lawyer can do. And it's really fun and really interesting. My question for you is you were working with engineers and tech product folks. How did you translate their work to lawyers and how did you translate your legal work to them? Yeah, my approach has always been empathy-based. I, I don't know a better way to put this. And and I want to understand what the person I'm talking to needs and wants and why and how they want to get there. And this is across the board for my lawyers or for my tech folks. And then my I see my job is to get them there. And I guess my the person who hired me, David Sklar, for Rally Help, one of the things he always insisted that we do when we started meetings is really set the context for the person that we're talking to. So it's, hey, I'm a lawyer for this company. Here's what we're going to try to do today. This is a collaborative experience. And then you just don't use legalese because it's not a good approach. It doesn't mean anything outside of the legal world. And when you're talking to your fellow lawyer, you're also able to drop the legalese because we're all normal humans before we go to law school. (laughs) So I, I don't think there's been a lot of difficulty doing that translation as long as the approach is how can I help this person? And what are they trying to do? And and being able to approach it from this view of like building rapport and having empathy is I think critical because otherwise the person sitting across from you might say something and you're just in your own space and you want to understand what they're actually trying to convey to you. And it's not their job to be the perfect communicator. It's your job to, yeah. to listen really well and understand. And do you feel like you need to have either a technical background or a computer background, or is just a willingness to listen and learn sufficient? I think a willingness to listen and learn is sufficient. There's also got to be a willingness to do the extra work. And I had several colleagues who joined me at Rally Health after my first two years there. So we were expanding the team. And I don't think any of the three of them who joined had a tech background, but they did have privacy or healthcare background. And all three of them really excelled because what they brought was their ability to, you know, parse through the details and Mm. and learn quickly and then apply what they know about existing regulatory frameworks. And so what they really just had to have was that drive to do some of the learning on their own or or grab some time with me or my then um, chief privacy officer to talk about what they thought they understood and what they didn't. And and that was it. Like they they didn't need to be computer experts. They didn't need to be engineers. Mm. Yeah, sometimes it's actually good to be new to an area because you, by definition, have to go back to first principles. And if you have a lot of detailed experience, it can be hard not to jump into not legalese, but techies, I imagine. And you're just like talking to the engineer and you're using the engineer's words and the engineer's using your words. But 
when you have to put it into a general policy or explain it to a business person, or unfortunately, if you explain it to a court, that's not going to cut it. And there's a phrase on Reddit called ELI5. It's explain it like I'm five. And it's a phrase I use regularly. And it's really helpful because no one's trying to hide the ball on purpose. It just might be that you don't understand. And that's fine. And and a lot of times I approach it from that perspective. I probably don't understand. I'm not an engineer. So if you could help me understand, I'll work with you to get whatever it is that needs to be done done. I like that. I'm going to use that with my students, the uh, ELI 5. I mean, we talk about it when training new legal writers. We use the concept of letting people enter a discourse community, that part of what we're doing in law school is not teaching you how to sound like a lawyer or legalese. That's sort of the easy, lazy way of doing it. What we're trying to do is show you what lawyers expect organizationally, what they, what concepts they expect to see, what you know, what rules they expect to see where, what sources those rules can come from. And we're building a discourse community together. But the second you're with someone who's outside that discourse community, you immediately need to go back to first principles. And that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. I, I My general rule is if someone has to Google what I'm saying, then I, I have really screwed up. Hmm, totally. <laughs> you know, contract or otherwise. So it, your audience matters a heck of a lot more than I think people give it credit for. Yeah. And something that I think is important for your students who are interested in privacy and cybersecurity to know is that um, everyone in the privacy field is generally very approachable. And there are a lot of opportunities to volunteer and get your name out there and be known in whatever community you're in for being the privacy person. And if you're more cybersecurity interested, then check out the B-Sides conferences that are local to you. And these are security B-Sides. They have various chapters across the US and they are volunteer, local-based, and they're actually really interesting talks by technical experts. A lot of times what technical experts need help with is a basic talk about cybersecurity lawyer. What can I do to protect myself when I'm on a red team or an independent consultant doing red teaming, which is like offensive security? And you can fill that niche. And if you're trying to build a client base, that's a great place to get your name out there because people will come to you and start asking questions. So it's security B-sides. Go to a DEF CON if you can make it. It's on the West Coast. Come to ShmooCon, which is on the East Coast, and check out what the EFF is doing. Very cool stuff. Wow. Okay. So B, I, I, these are all new things to me. So I'm going to repeat them and make sure I understand them. So B-sides, DEF CON, and yes. ShmooCon. I think I got that right. Yes. Wow. And then the EFF. Yes. The Electronic Frontier Foundation. Foundation. Okay. Yes. Yeah, And is that stuff that people can start getting active with soon after they graduate or while they're in law school? When's the right time to start dipping your toes in if this sounds interesting? Really, whenever you want, you'll have people in college showing up as well. Huh. It, these conferences are not professional conferences, they're hacker conferences. And you'll get people from DHS's cybersecurity organization there, you'll have the FBI there, but you'll also have private corporations and you'll also have individuals in their individual capacity. And they run the gamut from white hat hacker to gray hat hacker to red hat to black hat hacker. And those are white all hat's different. The good, white hat's the good one, right? Yeah. So it, it ends up being like in that realm. So Got it. You, Got you, it. you end up getting to know the cybersecurity world really well. And I think that's very important if you're wanting to go into cybersecurity law. And you might find out that you don't actually want to do the lawyer side of it. You want to do the cybersecurity side of it. Hmm. So 
That's awesome. And my, my last question in terms of the professional landscape, because this has been really interesting because this just, I feel like when I talk to people about this, particularly students and lawyers who don't know a lot about this, it feels like a really small world that's like hard to break in. But when you talk about it, there's actually a lot of entry points, even if it happens to be right now a small world. Sounds like it's just going to get bigger. It's always good to be part of a practice that gets bigger as opposed to one that gets smaller. Is Do you think more and more in-house companies are going to have either full-time or at least part of their time privacy and cybersecurity lawyers as part of their in-house legal departments? Yeah, I think what you're going to see in-house is there's a whole thing on the West Coast and with startups called product council means you're looking at IP, you're looking at commercial, you're looking at um, user design, the user experience, and how you can bill it, but you're also looking at privacy and cybersecurity for some of these companies. Alternately, you're also going to see in-house companies that have dedicated privacy lawyers or dedicated cybersecurity lawyers. And in some cases, you're seeing cybersecurity lawyers that are nested under the security vertical, separate outside of the rest of the legal team. I don't know what I think about it. I haven't experienced it and I haven't talked to folks in that role, but I, I have seen that start by early last year. And then I think you'll also see your tech transactions lawyers. And I didn't talk a lot about them. I know you'd asked about them very early yeah. on. And it's because I don't have a great like uh, understanding of how tech transactions is within a law firm. My understanding is that it's like vendor procurement and licensing agreements. And hmm. I don't know how much the crossover is with what I consider privacy and cybersecurity. But I do, do know that a lot of people who are in tech transactions tend to cross over into privacy or cybersecurity eventually. So when you say tech transactions, that's you want to know about licensing a set of data to another company and what needs to go in that contract and how that license is going to look. Yeah, I think that's generally the lay of the land. All right. So last two questions and then <laughs> I will let you go. So the first question is based on all of your experience and you're living this dream of cybersecurity and data privacy, I'm sure there are days when it doesn't feel like a dream. It feels like a job, but some days I hope it feels like a dream. What's one behavior or thing that lawyers do that you would recommend they stop? I think it would be assuming you're smarter than everyone else in the room. Say more about that. I love that. Yeah, I, I, lawyers have a tendency to walk into a room, whether it's with other attorneys or with other professionals, and assume that they're going to be right and they know everything that there is to know. But that is 99.999% never the case. And it, it means that you've already set up a mental block from receiving new information. And you've also set up a psychological block, whether you're aware of it or not, from other people giving you information that you really need to know. So there might be a reason that someone's chasing you for a contract to be signed because they're under pressure for some other reason from someone who's potentially higher up in house and you need to know that. So you can either escalate appropriately or manage it immediately. And if you walk in thinking all there is to know and your priorities are more important, then you've really just cut off several opportunities. So I love that. I think I, th I totally agree in my limited experience, not in the cyber world. The more you go in and, and say, I am the novice here. I have some experience and I have some skills, but I'm the novice in the room. It often is such a valuable experience to be effective as a lawyer. I think that's awesome. All right. So my second question of the pair is the one I always end these interviews with, which is if you have a piece of advice, it could be technical, it could be uh, lifestyle, it could be anything for either your 
I'm going to law school self or I just graduated from law school self, what would that piece of advice be? Yeah. So it's true that you need to hustle to build your career. That's that's 100% true. But what's also 100% true is that you only have a certain number of days that you can have experiences with people that you love in your life. And so it might be tempting to say yes to this last minute thing that you can bill for, or, hey, I need to study more and then mess around on Instagram or whatever. But the reality is that you should definitely prioritize your relationships because if you look at something like, hey, how many Christmases do you have left with your parents? Assuming the average lifespan is 80 years or something like that. Take that average lifespan and go, okay, that means I have 10 more of these or 20 more of these. And then when you get that concrete number hmm. in your head, you realize how much more important it is to experience the life that you have than it is to just bill or hustle towards billing. So yeah, it's really important to work really hard, but make sure that you understand why you're working that hard and what you're working for. Wow. Hustle, but remember, I like that. I'll leave that as a takeaway. And it's hard, right? It's hard for non-lawyers, but it's really hard, I think, for lawyers. And it's why it's why we're talking about mental health in the legal profession. It's why we're talking about physical health, uh, substance abuse, all of those pieces, because I agree with you, right? You need to hustle, but you also need to set boundaries. And yep. the hustle and the boundaries, by definition, are always going to be clashing. And yeah. a quote that I don't know if it's true, it may be apocryphal, but that I have heard was said by Justice Ginsburg was, you can have it all, you just can't have it all the time. And yeah. that's the balance that we're all working towards. If I'm misdescribing the quote, I apologize, but I think that sort of captures some of what you're saying. Yes, 100%. Awesome. Flexuchi, it's been so great getting to chat. If you're interested in cybersecurity or you're interested in learning more, where can people find you? Definitely reach out to me on LinkedIn or on Twitter. I'm at Suchi Pahi. I will respond to you and we will get a date set up. I'm, I tend to be pretty slammed just work-wise, but sure. um, I always like to make time for folks who are interested in the field or who want to pivot into the field. And if I don't have the answer, I will try to connect you with someone who does. Thanks so much, Suchi. I appreciate it.